So welcome to another All Access interview. I'm sitting here with composer uh, Charlie Clauser. Charlie, thank you so much for your time and for uh, joining today. Of course. So I'd love to start off and just uh, kind of get to know your your background and your in your path to where you where you are today. So talk about kind of the first memories you have of because I know you had a career before <laughs> becoming a film and TV composer and game composer. But talk about the kind of first inkling of where music kind of entered your life and how did that lead to the career you had? Interesting. Uh, well, like I was one of those kids who didn't have a bunch of older brothers that turned me on to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and everything. Um, I was the oldest child and my parents were musical and there was always music in the house, but it was of a previous era. You know, my mom played piano and there was a lot of uh, ragtime, Scott Joplin kind of stuff coming out of the piano. And and my dad loved Dixieland jazz. So I was never really exposed to, you know, a lot of people have an, a cousin or an older brother that, that turns them on to cool music as they're growing up. And I sort of made it all the way to like fifth or sixth grade, taking lessons on clarinet, then guitar, then piano, and then drums without even knowing that rock and roll existed. And I would play my little drum kit along to like Broadway show tune albums that I borrowed from my dad or to like Dixieland jazz kind of stuff. And of course, then it all changed when I found like a, when I found a Led Zeppelin album and a David Bowie album at a yard sale and was like, you know, how, why have you been hiding this from me? Um, and so then, you know, I, I played, uh, my main instrument was the drums through high school and played in school jazz band and, and marching band and everything. And then in when I went to college, I went to a freaky liberal arts college in Massachusetts called Hampshire and very small college, but they did have an electronic music program, uh, which was three students, you know. And in those days, of course, this is, uh, this was from 1981 to 85 was when I went to college. And in that in that era, it was pre-MIDI. So we didn't have any computers and electronic music in that era meant, you know, a giant ARP synthesizer that you manually would patch together the modules to make sounds and a bunch of reel-to-reel -reel tape machines for making tape loops. So it was very sort of academic, old school electronic music. But that was a great way to learn because that's kind of like, that's doing it the hard way, you know? So once computers and stuff came on the scene in the, the mid 80s, uh, then I was in heaven because the stuff that had been a struggle before became much quicker and much easier. And of course, the the, the door was kicked open to a much wider world of, of sound and sonic experimentation. And then when affordable samplers started to come out in the, the mid 80s, then I could really get up and get up and running. There was only a couple of these sort of recording engineering schools in that era, um, and I went to one of those, which which was a great another great sort of foundation in my you know in my education. And after college, was working at a music store in Manhattan as the resident kind of computer and sampler expert uh, and I'd, there'd be like a line of customers waiting for me to show up half an hour late for work every day and one of my customers who would come over from Australia twice a year to see what was new because it's of course in the pre-internet era you had to physically go to Sam Ash or Manny's on 48th street to see what the cool new music tech was one of my customers an Australian uh, record producer and tv and film composer was moving to New York to uh to score the final season of a CBS TV series called The Equalizer, 
which Stuart Copeland from the police had scored previous seasons of and wrote the theme. And he, this Australian guy hired me to kind of be the tech whiz, the number three man on their three man team basically. And so before I got involved in Nine Inch Nails and making records and doing all that, I did have a few years where I was working you know, on a weekly TV series, not as the credited composer, but as the guy who had to knuckle down behind their little little Macintosh computer and, and make the stuff happen. I was all the drum programming and, and rhythm programming and kind of running the rigs. Then I got diverted into 15 years of getting involved with Nine Inch Nails and bands like Rob Zombie and, and Ministry and bands like that doing programming and remixes and so on. But then when I left Nine Inch Nails in 2001 uh, and returned to LA, Nine Inch Nails had been based in New Orleans for years up to that point. Um, I was, I wanted to re-enter the, the film scoring side of things because that's, to me, that was always much more of a, of a free form kind of playground of sound. You know, when you're making records, you sort of have the intro and the verse and the chorus and the breakdown. And, and there's a kind of a format which you, as much as you try to subvert it in the context of a band like Nine Inch Nails, which was pretty out there in terms of song structure and sound design, it's still kind of like painting a portrait where you have to get the shape of the nose just right and so on. But in scoring for picture, it's, it's like abstract, it can, it can be abstract art. You can have wild sound design and you know, unusual structures of how the music is put together. And that, that always appealed to me because I was a fan of you know, Brian Eno and Roxy Music and sort of more art, art rock kind of stuff. So when I returned to Los Angeles in 2001, I wasn't, and wanted to re-enter the, the scoring side of things. I wasn't, ex I wasn't exactly a refugee from a band who wanted to get into this. I already had some years. I kind of knew how the sausage had been made. Right. And yeah. that was super helpful because I wasn't coming into it cold and trying to figure out the workflow and the terminology and, and all that. Um, obviously, it was, I was still starting from the bottom, but I wasn't coming into it completely cold and that was a great that was a huge advantage and I was always grateful to uh, the Australian composer whose name was Cameron Allen who sadly died a few years ago uh, for taking a chance on the kid who sold him samplers at the music store back in the 80s you know <laughs> that's amazing um, so yeah when you came back into this world uh, one of your first kind of big projects was the TV series Fastlane mm -hmm. um, which is a McGee created uh, I think he was on the heels of the big successful Charlie's Angels and everything um, was that like a great like kind of almost just like a booster pack to get you into it because t the television oh, schedule yeah. is insane so I mean that was just like you hit the ground running I'm sure was that nerve-wracking where you like had self-doubt or were you just like let's <laughs> were we excited <laughs> well I was super excited but I still had uh, the training wheels on because that gig I did in conjunction with that same Australian composer, Cameron Allen. You know, we'd remained friends over all my years of being in New Orleans, being involved in nails and making records and so on. And then when I returned to Los Angeles, we he was still out here. He was sort of one of these Renaissance man types who would, he'd work on music for a year and then he'd go off with his wife and film a documentary. And then he'd move to Tokyo and take up painting. And he was always doing one thing and, and then another. But when I returned to Los Angeles, we, we reunited and he said, you know, there's some TV shows kicking around. And he was kind of the, he was a composer who composed, uh, to put it kindly, from the couch. 
you know, he would, he would lie there on the couch and he would have a super soaker water gun. And if you played something he didn't like, he would shoot you in the back with the super soaker. Um, so <laughs> when there was shows kicking around, he knew that he needed someone like me to kind of drive the rig, you know, but deferring to his uh, experience and his knowledge and his taste and in, in to help guide the, the process. So the two of us reunited and we scored that one season of that show Fastlane and both and it was great because now my name could be on the show and it, it was credited as music by Cameron Allen and Charlie Clouser. Now when your name is on a card on the front of the show now you can say to people hey I did this music. You, you, you don't have to tell some story like I just told you about how I was the number three man on a three-man team and my name's not really in the credits but I swear I really worked on that show. So it was great it was a great opportunity to, ha to have him kind of taking the heat and using his experience and his reputation to get the gig. And then I helped him complete the gig. And once I, once we, uh, that was great fun, but also a learning experience in terms of the technology and how to, uh, how to do that kind of job with a, a high tech computer and synthesizer kind of rig and not get yourself into trouble. And on that one, um, I got myself into trouble only in terms of the workflow and the awkwardness of working with my giant room full of synthesizers that I brought back with me from my Nine Inch Nails years and so forth. And it really helped to refine the process. And of course, that was right in the era when computers were getting a lot faster and we were starting to see these sort of in the box solutions where the synthesizers and the sound sources and the mixing become inside the computer instead of this giant room full of gear with expensive cabling. So that was a good teething, teething process of going through that season of the show and learning, okay, we're never using that workflow again because it took too much time and made us stay up till four in the morning finishing stuff. Um, and then quickly after the Fastlane series ended, um, then the Saw movie came around, the first Saw movie. And then I was kind of off and running, you know, off to the races. Right. So before we dive into Saw, um, you did work on a, a bunch of other great TV series um, uh, like uh, Numbers and Las Vegas and the kind of Twin Peaks-esque uh, Wayward Pines. Mm -hmm. um, do you enjoy, I mean, do you enjoy that kind of uh, writing style? And um, how do you kind of keep, I mean, I, I guess it will it'll spill into Saw a little bit because you did nine of those films. When you're, when you're doing seasons and episodes and episodes and episodes, especially kind of more procedural stuff, how do you keep the music uh, evolving and fresh every time? Well, I, you know, some composers really prefer film or TV, but I'm, I like both because there really are different processes. And, you know, I love doing 23 episode network TV series, even though the deadlines were crushing, you get into a, a kind of a vibe where you've you've narrowed your focus especially on a procedural show like numbers where um you know we had the, we sort of had four kind of modes that we would be in where one is uh okay it's the fbi agents and they're out in the field trying to stop the bank heist and they're on surveillance or whatever and that's kind of tension and action and then another mode would be okay it's the fbi agents but they're at headquarters staring at computers and interrogating people and gathering evidence and that's kind of a more subdued tension still rhythmic and pulsy but not big war drums and then there would be a, a third vibe which was the kind of b story in many of the episodes which was uh david crumholtz's character charlie 
no no relation, who was a college a child math prodigy and college professor at a very young age, and there was this kind of lightly humorous, awkward comedy element to the music. So it wasn't deadly serious anymore when we're when the scenes are set on the college campus where he where he taught. And then the fourth vibe was sort of the the what we called the home fires burning vibe, which is when David Crumholt and Judd Hirsch, who are father and two sons, when we're at their house and they're arguing over whether or not they should have new shingles put on the shed or whatever. And that was a, a different, didn't have the light humor element, but had um, a warm, a much more warm feeling. And of course they would still talk about their FBI cases at the dinner table, but it wasn't deadly serious gathering evidence behind the computer. So you had these kind of four flavors that were always rotating as the show progressed through each episode. And once I kind of had nailed down the, the approach for each of those flavors, that made the whole, it, it made the process much easier. It wasn't this big question mark of like, oh, what am I going to do next? Because you could take your inspiration from the setting that the scenes were set, were, were taking place in, and from the, the, the personalities of the characters. And that was, having that kind of worked out, it was a little bit of a, you know, of a, of a, not a struggle, but it was a little bit of head scratching in the first few episodes until those kind of got nailed down and we were, and I found uh, musical styles that were, that the producers and directors really responded to and liked that vibe. And then I kind of knew what not to do in a given setting. And I always, I really enjoyed uh, those kind of, even though the deadlines could be crushing, uh, it never got old, and I was always, even though those shows ran for, you know, five and six seasons, um, I was sad to see them end. I would have, I would still be doing them if they were still on the air, because we had a great time. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you build a family, and you build a relationship with everybody, and then it's just like, it comes to an abrupt stop sometimes, you know, or if it, if you have the um, luxury of ending something on your own terms, then it could be a little bit better, yeah. but, um, you know, it's not always happens in this industry. <laughs> um so let's let's dive into Saw. Like Saw has been, you know, part of pop culture. I think for now, for since the first film, and it really it kind of embraced this low budget. Um, you know, one thing I love about the horror genre is that you can get these great low budget movies that are really pushing young filmmakers to try different techniques and be more experimental and kind of think outside the box a little bit. So how did you get involved with that first film? Uh, did you have connections? Did somebody approach you or how did that happen? It, it was not strictly through uh, channels. Um, although I, by that point I did have an agent and everything um, because of my work on Fastlane. Um, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of on a sideways approach. Um, I got a call from my lawyer of all things, my music business lawyer, who I'd worked with for 10 or 15 years up to that point. Just, he would do things like negotiate a, a contract for a remix or, or whatever, you know, no big, no big deals. But he, uh, because I'd worked with him for so long, uh, when I started working with him, he was kind of a junior guy at the firm. And, and over the years, he became like one of the Ayatollahs of rock and roll. So, at one and usually when I get a phone call from him, it's either on my birth, it's usually on my birthday, and that's the only time I talk to him usually. And I can usually hear like waves breaking in the background because he's at his beach house in Santa Barbara or something. And I can hear ice cubes tinkling in a highball glass and steaks sizzling on the grill. Um, but this was a weird one because he called me on like a Wednesday at 10 in the morning, and I thought, well, something 
tragic must have happened, you know, for because it's not my birthday. Hi, Charlie. Uh, you got a pencil? Take down this phone number. I need you to call these guys right away. They have this interesting little indie horror film, and they've got some they've got they've tamped a score together using a bunch of industrial rock music and i think they even have one of your remixes in their temp score you need to call them right away and so and i was in the middle of i think i was in the middle of cutting vocals with Paige hamilton from helmet for the helmet size matters album i said okay i'll, I'll call him and i hung up the phone and then five minutes later my lawyer called me back and he said what are you doing you haven't called them yet i'm like are you surveilling me you know so i called them and as it turned out uh, James Wan and Lee Wanell uh, were in town and they had been represented by my lawyer. In it's like he had helped them shop a deal to get the movie made. And they kind of got locked out of, the, they didn't get a deal with any of the, with any of the studios. And so they self-produced and self-financed the film with three producers, uh, Mark Berg, Oren Kulis. And they had this movie basically done and they wanted a score. So I went down and I watched this thing at 10 in the morning, which is not the ideal time to watch a gory movie when you're still exactly. digesting your <laughs> egg McMuffin or whatever. Um, and the, and it, they did have a very industrial kind of score attempt together using music from Ministry and Einsters and Neubotten and, and a lot of like really out there stuff, not sort of, you know, it wasn't like the Godzilla versus Kong soundtrack with lovely orchestrations and brass it was very little kind of conventional orchestra type stuff in their temp score and i was all over it. i thought this is fantastic like yes please and they said okay great let's start and it was a as as usual it was a mad dash to the finish line i think it was about five weeks all together from that meeting until i had to be done um but it would they they had created such a, a compelling like visual style with the cinematography and the and the of course the storyline and everything and that twist ending at the in the end of the first saw movie is a that's a that's a million dollar twist ending so i was all i was all in with that and it was uh, a pleasure to race to the finish line on that one and i remember at the time you know because you never know if a pro you, you know that you've done good work, but you never know if a project, whether it's an album or a film, is going to find its audience. And at one point, uh, James Wan said, look, if this thing winds up going straight to VHS, we were still on VHS in those days. If this thing goes straight to video, I promise I will rent out a movie theater so we can all see our names on the big screen once in our life. Not, you know, he knew he'd made a great movie. I knew I'd done some of my best work on the score, but you never know if it's going to find uh, it's 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 going to resonate with the audience right, exactly and of course and, and i still give james a, a bit of a ribbing about that you know 20 years later that like remember when you were going to rent a basement theater at the arc light at, at two in the afternoon on a thursday so we could at least see our names on the big screen once in our lives um of course it wound up uh from opening at the at the big room at the chinese theater and here we are 20 years later it's a it's a freaking horror movie juggernaut, you know? Yeah, it became one of those franchises that just kept on going, which mm -hmm. honestly, they're they're the best. And I mentioned earlier why I love those kind of franchises. You know, I just recently did, a, uh, last fall, just kind of power watch through Friday the 13th. And it's like, you see that, and you see that as they keep trying to go and then you see new filmmakers come in and rotate in and try to keep it going and see, okay, let's work with the formula. How can we do it? So now that this is spiral will be the ninth of course spiral is kind of taking a little bit a different approach but now that you're kind of this deep into it how 
was that? How was that whole journey from saw one to here? How, and you, I mean, it's a rare thing that you not only stayed with every single film yeah. we've seen, like, I think even Harry Manfredini took a, a film off between the, the Friday the 13th, but you stayed with every single film. You never got replaced. You never had somebody come in uh, to, to do anything else. And what was that experience? Like, how did the, did the music evolve? Were you taking each one and just trying to work with the formula and see how you can kind of tighten it? Did you try to branch out and do different things? What was kind of your thought process tackling every single film that came every year or two? Well, I definitely feel uh, lucky that they didn't all of a sudden call in a triple A-list composer to like replace me for the second one. But I think part of, and, and you know, all credit to James and to Lee and to Oren and Mark for like, you know, they're, they're kind of like, hey, you're our guy for these movies, that's it. And I'm like, you know, thank you. But I think part of it is that the, the soundscapes that, that I created in the first couple were so sort of left field uh, that it, it would have sounded weird if they had slotted in, quote, a normal composer, unquote. And maybe that composer would have been struggling to try to duplicate some of the weird, like bowed metal sound effect type of stuff that I was doing. Um, and so it might've just been the path of least resistance to just keep me on. Um, but the, the, the flavor of the, the score um, through all of the sequels, it does change in a lot. And there's some elements which you know are gonna be there. There's a couple of musical themes. Of course, the, the sort of cue that happens at the very end of every movie that started with Hello Zepp in the first movie, that gets reinterpreted, remixed, extended, shortened, new things, new sections added. That always appears at the end of the movie. So that's sort of a given. But, and there are a few other sort of minor uh, melodic and musical themes that are tied to characters or places that appear, maybe it's only in a flashback in one of the movies, but then I can bring back that musical theme that, that takes you back to where that person or that uh, setting first occurred in one of the earlier movies. But a lot of the style changes in my approach to the score is a response to the different uh, visual styles of the directors. Um, and you know, uh, on the on a couple of the movies that Darren Bowsman uh, directed in the kind of the middle chunk of the of the franchise, there was a there was almost a sort of neo gothic aspect to the way he set the, the production design and the way some of the traps were designed and and it was so in in those films I wound up using sounds and approaches that I wouldn't use in some others like I actually had choirs in a couple of them because and that was a response to what I was seeing on the screen is sort of you know uh, my analogy is you remember that scene in Silence of the Lambs when they after after Hannibal finally uh, he's locked in the cage in the in that basketball gym or whatever and then he he kills uh, Sergeant Pembry who's hanging up there and this sort of you know Christ on the cross imagery with the lights coming from behind and there, yeah, there yeah. was visual kind of elements like that in some of Darren's movies that made me respond by using kind of sort of epic swelling choir type sounds that I would never use for instance in Spiral because that kind of visuals part of it doesn't occur in this movie so a lot of what I do is responding to the the settings and the places that the action is taking place in the movies. Absolutely. And uh, while you did, you got to retain with Darren for, for Spiral and he did some of the earlier ones, you did kind of have a rotating door of directors coming through um, and you kind of being 
the, the you know the high school senior that that kept stay, did you ever run into any um i mean not to not, not anything negative but did you ever have any friction or conflict with people who came in and tried to steer maybe tried to like how can we reinvent this uh formula how can we do it and did you or did you just like embrace their visions and be like yeah let's try it let's just go with it oh i love when if if there's any there's never been really any friction and partly because i'm anxious for uh guidance you know if because it's it's one thing if they say you know and look the producers i love them and sometimes they'll say hey man you know what to do do your thing you're like come on man you know give me a little more <laughs> give me a little more direction do you want it to be darker lighter more you know how should how can we make this one different and so when i when a, a various directors come on the scene for the different movies in the franchise if they have any you know i'm it's it's sort of like i'm I'm wringing them like a sponge, like, please, you know, any movie scores that you love or hate or things that you have heard in previous Saw movies that you never want to hear again, you know, any guidance like that really helps me and makes my whole process that much easier because I'm not wondering, oh, geez, I wonder if they're going to like this one. Well, I'll do a test version and see if they like it. So the more guidance I can get as the different directors come on the scene and their, their visual style and their editing style may change, uh, the better. I've got a coloring book and the lines are already drawn out. You know, it's like a coloring book you'd get, you know, with your Happy Meal when you were a kid. The lines are drawn out. That's the movie. And my job is to color them in. Now I can decide to make the clown's nose green or orange, but if anybody has a suggestion about what color the clown's nose needs to be, I welcome that because then that just takes us further, that takes us quicker towards our destination and is going to make a more kind of coherent synergistic result if we're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Now, since Saw came out and since this franchise is kind of uh, did its thing, uh, I think the horror landscape has definitely changed. We saw kind of, we saw the paranormal activity movies came in and did something, you know, kind of moving away from the gore fest and kind of uh, the that stuff and more paranormal a little bit more ghostly stuff and we're kind of still in that you know we have the conjuring stuff so now that spiral is here it's a completely different landscape i think we got you know blumhouse is kind of exploding yeah. now what was the approach with the film that you and darren wanted to do and what were those kind of early conversations like and what was your goal with the score for this film well because the the storyline is a little bit uh it sort of like took a little bit of an exit ramp from the traditional Saw franchise. It's not, uh, the entire movie does not take place in some dank dungeon where we never see the daylight and it's just people struggling to escape. Whether I'm picking sounds or picking a, a, an approach for uh, the, a score, a lot of what I do is influenced by the the setting, the place. And to the, to the point that um, to me, as I'm deciding what type of string sound or drum sound I might want to use on a given piece of uh, the score a lot of those sounds to me my, my brain says oh that sound it's inappropriate for this scene in a dimly lit sh shitty bathroom somewhere you know at the bottom of some one of jigsaw's layers on the other hand some sounds really do sound like you're in some crusty hallway with water dripping and my my mind will say that sound is inappropriate if the scene is taking place outdoors or if there's if we can see any daylight so a lot of spiral takes place not in some crazy dungeon but out in the real world some of the scenes i know it's a shocker are actually in daylight which is quite unusual for uh, for a saw movie but that 
again, much like the the suggestions that might come from the producers or, or the director, that is super helpful because if a scene is taking place outdoors and somebody is in their car speeding towards the destination to try to save the victim, that that setting immediately kind of rules out a whole category of sounds, which in my mind feel like they need to be set indoors in darkness. So that's, again, that's sort of like a, a, a very helpful way to eliminate a whole series of approaches that I might have wanted to try. And that helps me to limit and focus the soundscape and the musical style for a given cue based on what we're seeing on the screen. And in Spiral, you know, there are elements of sort of a police detective tracking down the case aspects, which in other movies, uh, you know, it was always part of the other films, but it was sort of a smaller part than it is in Spiral. So, and that's interwoven into the story. It's not sort of like, here's our set of victims and here's the cops trying to find them. It's in the, the, the victim, the, the group of victims and the group of cops in Spiral kind of relate to each other in a way that they haven't in previous movies. So that that meant that there was going to be more of a of an overlap and um some of the elements from the daylight scenes would creep into the kind of trap and suspense scenes as well so again it's it's great to be able to sort of take a reading from what's going on in the script and in the editing and in the production design and use that to inform my musical approach absolutely and you got uh, a great character with detective banks and uh, to shape a score around, you know, have a really kind of this big primary protagonist and Chris Rock, of course, taking special uh, involvement in the film because he wanted to really dig deep and, you know, challenge himself. He's an executive producer as well. Was it fun scoring for that character? Absolutely. And like, I love, I mean, Chris's performance in this, I mean, he, you know, he's playing it deadly serious. And because it's Chris Rock, he, in some aspects, he can't help but but provoke a smile in the audience because he, he's not he's playing the character deadly serious completely straight um but there are some one-liners here and there it's but it's not a chris rock comedy fest by any means but it, it's great i love when i see when you see actors kind of subvert your expectations and someone who you might have thought of you know it'd be like seeing anthony hopkins in a light-hearted comedy or you know the opposite seeing an actor who you think of as being funny and seeing them in a deadly serious role. And this was definitely a case of that. And I, I, I love that Chris got involved and is a fan of the franchise and was able to, you know, bring his own set of ideas and his own approach and his own storyline to this thing. And uh, I, I, I think it's gonna be an easy sell for an audience because again, like Chris is, he's a familiar face He's not, it's not sort of like, who's this person they got cast as the main character in this movie? I've never seen this guy before. You know, we're all familiar with him, but his approach to the character and uh, to the film is, is not necessarily what we've seen before from him. So I think that's a great combo because people can be like, really? That's Chris Rock in this serious ass role? Let's go check this out. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Robin Williams started doing that and it was just like, whoa, you know, we, we saw another yeah. side to we knew him for comedy and kind of family stuff and then it's like and oh, you Robin one hour like photo one hour, yes one hour yeah. photo was like 
I, I was like, yes, I'll take more of that, please. Right. Or, or even yeah. Goodwill Hunting, where he's, you know, a serious character and everything. So, and showing those diverse acting chops, I think it's fantastic. You're kind of jumping out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned Hello, Zep, which of course we, you know, that became kind of the anchor of the series that you kind of, the big reveal of the first one. And, and it just took on a life of its own. Yeah. It was in every trailer, I mean, commercial, everything. <laughs> Um, just from your perspective, how is that to, you know, I, mean, I think you encountered something similar with American Horror Story when you co-wrote the, the main theme that kind of now the staple of the series of that. Um, what's it like to see a piece of music like that just kind of take a life of its own and it just become, everyone just connects with it? It's, you know, it never feels normal. And uh, because a lot of, you know, for so many years in, in the kind of, in my involvement in the record industry and the the remixes I would do and the albums I would work on, they weren't like iconic one-shot things. It was sort of a, uh, I always got the impression that in the record years, we were just keep feeding the beast, just keep churning out more badass stuff. And and that's kind of the, the mentality you get into. And you never went back and like revisited music that you'd done 10 years earlier. So it is uh, a little strange to be, you know, every time a Saw movie comes around to be, hearing that exact same little dulcimer part and those exact same violins that I did way back in 2003. Um, but it's always fun to try to reinterpret that and put a new spin on it. Some, you know, in some of the Saw movies, the, the Hello Zep theme is, is fundamentally similar to what occurred in the first movie. In other Saw movies, the Hello Zep theme turns into this six minute long wandering thing with different sections and new pieces added before it finally swerves around back to the original familiar little violin parts. Um, and I enjoy all of those different approaches. Uh, and I, I, I have not yet tired of hearing those riffs, um, but it's always, it is like, I feel like it's not, my work so much that made the thing iconic it's the connection that people had to that piece of music and the film and you know not to be too self-deprecating but it's not it's not like the greatest piece of music ever written it's the way in which it meshed with what was the emotions that were in the story at that point where that piece of music was placed and the connections that that people made to it and of course in the first movie the, the concept which James and I had for the score was that it starts off kind of curious and light and these people are in a bad situation. Then it gets darker and darker and murkier and murkier until just before Hello Zap comes on, the score has turned into basically banging on pots and pans. And it's just this train wreck of sound that has lost all musicality so that when the Hello Zap theme starts, it's sort of like the lights just got switched on really bright in the room. And now the music comes into focus, the reverb and all the murkiness goes away. And this bright strident, bold little thing is sort of right in your face. And that was a format which worked, which meshed with the storyline and what was taking place in the first Saw movie and really helped kind of snap the audience to attention when that piece of music started. And it has, 
gone on to have a similar kind of purpose is sort of like when you hear that piece of music start up you you know to pay attention because now is when the ending montage and voiceover and reveal that explains some of the stuff that you might not have seen uh, or have we're, we're looking at from a different camera angle earlier in the movie now is when it's all all will be revealed so I love that 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 piece of music has taken on a, a life of its own kind of beyond me now I'm just sort of like the custodian of it you know <laughs> yeah. and it's um I mean just the the sound of the the whole saw soundscape that you created and bringing the kind of industrial sound to it which I mean throws back to your kind of sonic identity as a as a musician and a storyteller um and you know it's, you're bringing this into the horror franchise when I'm you know there have been electronic horror scores uh but nothing that's I mean uh, I love that kind of industrial sound and the metallic and the scrapes and everything. And you kind of infuse that a bit into American Horror Story theme as well. Uh, we're not seeing Bernard Herrmann's strings and you know lush or as, as thing. Do you? How do you think that psychologically affects the the listener versus something a little bit more, whether it's like screeching violins or something? Like, what do you or what are you trying to get the audience to feel with like this kind of just like? you know, this kind of uh, momentum and almost testosterone and just like, you know. I mean, I, I've always, you know, I'm a huge sound collector and sort of sound fanatic. And I'm always recording things with my little portable recorder in case that might be a cool sound that I can use later in, in, a, in the studio. And so I, when I hear a sound, if I'm, you know, if I, if I open a door and it squeaks, I think, oh boy, that's a, that could be some that could be something. And you know, one sound that I used extensively through uh, the the TV series Numbers, and have used a little bit in some other scores, was something I recorded on a cassette Walkman in 1980, I think, uh, or 81, when I visited New York City and I was at the 72nd Street subway platform, and the as the subway pulled in, the brakes screeching the brakes of the subway car screeching in this huge reverberant subway tunnel. I thought that is fantastic. So I missed my train. I let the train go and I got my little cassette Walkman out and I waited for the next train and recorded that. And that exact recording that I made that day, you know, when I was 19 or whatever, uh, is something that I've put into the samplers and used sort of as this weird spooky string type sound because it had a pitch and it had a kind of whistling reverb quality. And my mind, when I first heard it in that subway tunnel, I thought, that could be that could be something that I could use in, in music, and so that kind of instant emotional response to just a sound, not necessarily a chord or a melody or a piece of music, but just to the sound itself, is kind of that's ground zero for me, and that's why um, a lot of the sounds that I and instruments that I use in the saw scores have are are either sort of you know, a violin bow on a sheet of metal or these weird homemade sculptural instruments that I've collected um, because they immediately conjure up a, a sense of place and a sense of danger, at least to me. And then as I work with them and try to integrate them into a piece of music, then they kind of, that helps to shape them more to be appropriate to what we're seeing on the screen. And so those flavors of the, the weird kind of scrapey body metal type sounds married with the sort of uh old school industrial drum programming where you have you know pounding kick drums through distortion and stuff those are to me they conjure up a very 
you know, lavish sonic world. And I'm glad that those became kind of the foundational elements in the, the soft soundscape because there's, it'll take forever to, to wear them out for me anyway. In other words, I can, there's always a new way to approach that. And of course, from all the years of, of working with industrial rock bands, there's, you know, every song had to have a different kick drum. You know, you couldn't use the same sample more than once. And so I kind of am already steeped in that mentality. And that helps me to, um, of course, I have a huge collection of raw material to draw from, but that helps me to continue to use um, a, a certain family of sounds without having to reuse stuff and run out of it. At the same time, there are certain instruments and sounds that are traditional saw instruments, but I'm, I, I'm rarely using like the same sample, you know, it's because I have the instruments, I can just record a new performance. And so it still is the, the familiar flavor, but it's a new iteration of it. And, and it will feel familiar, but still fresh if I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah. And I love that you say that because it's, it's so true. Like it doesn't have to be sequence of notes. Um, like just, I was boiling some water like the other day and you know, when you hit a teapot and something goes boiling, is that like that? Yeah. The, the metallic like and I started laughing because it almost sounded like a you know Hanna-Barbera sound effect you know from like Scooby-Doo and it's just the metallic sounds do add that and uh, just a little throwback I when the third Saw movie came out I was I had just recently moved to LA and I was uh, the projectionist at the Regency in Azusa and they didn't have there was such an older theater they didn't even have a digital 3d projector so we, I, for the first time in my life i got a 35 millimeter 3d print i'm like what the fuck is this <laughs> and, but it added this like it, the, the 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 lens wasn't exactly good and it, i was testing it before we did our first show and it, it, and i got it right but it just added like a to have like a a, a tactical feel to that uh tactile feel to the to the film and hmm. added more of a I think better than what a digital 3d projection uh, would have looked like for for saw maybe not for like you know Mulan or something but yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was just you know I just love the you can feel things and I, you can feel the music and I think you can feel your music like almost you can feel like you can like you can hear the the metallic stuff touching which I think adds huge amounts of dimension it can be that can be a struggle or a possible that could be a, sometimes that can be a mistake when the sounds that I'm using in the score are too similar to the sound design and sound effects in the movie. If there's right. tons of clanking from the some machine in a trap scene in a mm -hmm. Saw movie, I uh, my reflex is to use similar sounds to con help to accentuate and conjure up the feel of that clanking machine that's about to tear someone's arm off or whatever. But then it becomes a little bit of a, of a tap dance to be able to separate the sounds of the score from the sound design that is gonna be front and center. So um, I've gotten myself into trouble a few times with that where the sound of the score just kind of blends with the sound effects too much. But um, I still think that it works with a Saw movie because then it's all, all audio is focused to this one destination. I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment. I mean, to be with this franchise for so long, and and of course, you know, you've done so many other things outside of the horror genre as well. Um, and it's just been a, a joy to to listen to your music since you've kind of returned to the space. And you know, I, I just love uh, people who come from different backgrounds. And you know, your former bandmates, you know, Atticus and Trent, are doing you know the stuff now too, amazing and stuff. Doing amazing, amazing stuff. Work. And they're bringing all these great ideas. And you, even like composers like James Dean Howard, who used to 
be with you know with Elton John, Hans Zimmer with the Buggles. I mean, everyone comes from when they come from that like different musical background or Tom Holkenborg, of course, Chunky XL, they bring so much great ideas. And I think you're in that fold and it's always just been a pleasure to listen to your music. And um, so to, to close us out, you know, we we're living in this uh, different time right now and the, and the industry is changing, not just music industry, but the film industry as well. And as a veteran who's been through so many different things and seen things change, what, what do you think is gonna be the future of of our industry. I mean, uh, do you see it shaping, especially from the impact of the pandemic? Do you see it returning to normal in a few years? Do you think it's going to, we're at least entering a new normal and a new way of doing things? Like, what do you, what do you predict or see? Well, it's funny, like the, on the one hand, the pandemic has made, has put uh, all kinds of barriers up in terms of production logistics, you know, and I did see a documentary about how Trent and Atticus uh, accomplished the recording of their score for Mank which is a very traditional, there's no synthesizers at all. It's small orchestral ensembles and how they were able to accomplish that in lockdown by basically getting each player to record their parts one at a time. I can only imagine the logistical and computer file shuffling to pull that off. But so on the one hand, it's created all these sort of severe challenges to just the logistics of it. But um, I think there's an upside too, because much the same way that a lot of, you know, a lot of, non-entertainment companies are having their employees work remotely and you know they're there a lot of them are finding that hey this this isn't so bad this actually works we can slim down our operation we don't have to maintain three floors of an office building in midtown manhattan to do to run our company we can have one floor and have the bottom two floors of people working remotely and i think we're seeing a similar kind of thing in the of course it doesn't really uh, affect going on location and shooting the films they still got to have a crew that's huge and so those there's no work from home option for that but for post-production a lot of that stuff um, can be transitioned to like this weird remote working environment without um, destroying the process and to be fair a lot of times when you're on the dub stage doing the final mix for uh, a film six guys sitting on those couches at the back just eating one fun size Snickers bar after another because technically there's nothing for them to do unless something goes wrong. So I think to some degree, like the logistics of doing sort of remote work on audio and, and post-production in film and TV, there's a, there's a potential upside because now you can work till three in the morning without incurring you know union overtime charges or whatever. So logistically, there's it's not as big of a decision as big of a disaster as it could have been. And the flip side is, uh, is that now, you know, with a year of everybody being stuck at home, they've watched every episode of everything that there is to watch. Once the kind of uh, the, the, the vaccine takes hold and the logistics of production out in the field have eased somewhat, I think there's going to be, uh, you know, this mass, there's this massive thirst for content that uh, I think is only going to be a good thing for anybody involved in the kind of thing I do or for people just in the broader film and TV industry. You know, if they would come out with five more seasons of The Mandalorian tomorrow, they would be watched by <laughs> three days later. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. we'd all just be like, yes, I'll take it. I'm going to watch them all right now. And I think that whole kind of, you know, there, there are downsides to the of the industry and just in terms of the way royalties are calculated and payouts and all that but 
it's there's a huge upside because it puts the cons the consumer of the content more in control. They don't have to wait for another episode of Game of Thrones to come out next Sunday, and then kind of maybe they forgot a little bit about what was on last week's episode. So the ability to binge watch these series and to consume them when and how you want, I think is in the law, it can only be a good thing. And it, there might be some teething pains for people at various segments of the uh, entertainment industry, but speaking as a, cons as a voracious consumer of that content, I love it. And yeah. Yeah. I watched all the Mandalorians and I waited until I could watch them all in one brick and we just plowed through them and it was awesome. And I love being able to consume uh, a, a limited run series in that fashion. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm. I always. Yep. I would always love to see the. You know, um, highest quality in a theater if possible. But, um, you know, I, I work in animation and we uh, we've we've never shut down the entire pandemic. But also right. streaming and everything has allowed us to reach wider audiences than we would have ever before. So, yeah, yeah for sure. I'm all well, for it. Yeah, Charlie. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to uh, talk with you and, and gather your insight and pick your brain for a bit. And, um, congrats on on Spiral. And it's uh, good to see you back back in the driver's seat with uh, Darren and doing continuing this on with a new kind of fresh take on it. So, and uh, uh, we can do this again sometime. Well, Taya, thanks for uh, for having me on. And uh, I, 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 hopefully there will be more chapters in the Saw Saga. We'll do another, do another one of these next year. <laughs>